It's so good to see you guys this morning as we celebrate uh, Independence Day. I know um, a few summers ago I was in London and as I uh, realized that they never put much ice in anything and almost never have air conditioning, I was so grateful that we chose to go our own way, right? Um, This morning we're going to finish our series uh, that we've been in for several months going through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7 again, the final verses. And Jesus has been leading us to this point. And as you can imagine, he concludes his message with great intentionality. He's very specific about how he lands the Sermon on the Mount. He's already talked to us about two different gates by which we enter Uh, into our lives, two different paths we can take, one wide and one narrow. He's talked to us about two different kinds of of prophets and teachers, one that that is faithful, one that is unfaithful. He's talked to us about two different kinds of disciples, disciples who are true and honest and faithful as followers, those that are self-deceptive and false followers. And he concludes it now by talking to us about two different builders, He concludes uh, with a parable, with a story that he intends to teach us truth. And part of what Jesus is going to say to us, and this is very, very important, the longer you've been in church, right? So you just measure your own years. It's important for us all. But the longer that you've been in church, the more important what Jesus is about to say is going to be this morning because it is so easy for us to gauge ourselves and to have a sense of pride around how much of the Bible we know or how much sort of of church culture we know, where we've been and what we've done. But Jesus is going to tell us it's not enough to simply hear his words. It's not enough even to know his words, to know the word of God. Jesus calls us to more than that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. I'll read verses 24 through 29. Therefore, therefore, Jesus is is commenting now on everything that he's been saying up until this point. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, before we go back and and work our way a bit through this, 
I just wanted to give you a word about how you understand and how you approach parabolic teaching. When Jesus grabs a story or grabs a picture from their day that they would have been familiar with and throws alongside it a truth of God, how is it that we understand what Jesus is saying, especially when we look at a passage here that has builders, that has storms, that has foundations, that has outcomes? And I'll just say, when you look at a multifaceted parable like this, you want to look for the constants. What is it that stays the same? And you want to look for the variable. What is it that changes? And when you, when you find the variable, you almost always get at what Jesus was saying. You get at the point that Jesus was making. So if you look at the constants in this story, he just tells us what stays the same. You see that, that everybody builds a life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about building a house, all of us build a life, right? Every choice that you make, every decision you make, every word you say, every word you choose intentionally not to say, taking this job, taking that job, moving from here to there, getting married, not getting married, having children, not having children, all of these things that we do are ways in which we're building a life how we respond or react to things. Everyone builds a life. In all lives in Jesus' story here, all lives face a storm. Those are constants. Everybody builds a life. Every life faces a storm. Now, maybe you're young enough yet that you haven't really faced a storm, but it's coming for you. It's coming for you. You don't have to live very long before you face a storm that you didn't expect that you can't control, that you were unaware was coming. Someone who's promised to love you decides they're no longer going to honor that. Someone betrays you that you thought you could trust. You lose a job that you felt like you'd be at for life. A child goes completely sideways in a way that you didn't see coming and never would have anticipated. The doctor calls and says, hey, you need to come back in. We have to talk about your tests. A global pandemic hits and changes everything you thought you, you knew. All of us build a life. And all of our lives face storms, right? Those things are constants. The variable, what is different in Jesus' story, is what the builders have built their lives on. It's the foundation upon which they've chosen to orient their lives. And that's the point that Jesus is getting at. He's saying, my words, my person, the word of God revealed in Scripture, and most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself, is that which Jesus is calling us to build our lives on, to build a life that when the storm comes, our lives will stand. And maybe, let's just say by chance, you make it through. You've known maybe some people like this, that their, their life just seemed to be rainbows and sunshine all the time, right? Pixie dust and fairy rides, uh, that was just their life. Now, usually if you know them well enough, you realize that it is true that into every life a little rain must fall. 
But let's say somebody makes it through this life. They get all the way through, I mean, it starts early, right? Middle school was traumatic. Some of you can still remember it decades later. Let's say they get through middle school and high school. Maybe they go to college. They get through college. They marry. They have a family. Let's say they get through all of that. One day they will face, each and every one of us will face the storm of God's judgment. We will come before the one who created us who gave us life, who sustained us with all of the common grace that we receive every single day. All of us are in this place this morning because we received so much common grace last night while we slept. God kept our our brains functioning right, sending off the right instructions that kept our lungs pumping and our heart beating all night while we slept. We get up this morning, we breathe air, we don't create. We receive rain we can't send. All of this common grace. Everyone will stand eventually before God and give an account for his or her life. And Jesus is saying to build our lives on anything other than his words is foolishness. It is the height of foolishness. And it leads everyone who does it to ruin And Jesus is speaking specifically here about his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but the principle applies throughout the entirety of the Word of God. If you remember, all of creation came into being by the power of the Word, the Logos of God, which is Jesus Christ himself, as the Spirit of God hovered over the creation. It's a powerful picture we see in Genesis 1. And two, Jesus says be very careful that you don't fall into that category of hearers only. Who can say, oh, I'm aware that the, the, the meek are blessed by God. That the peacemakers are blessed by God. That those who pay a price for following Christ with genuine devotion and love are blessed But I don't want to live that way, right? I want to get mine. I want to climb the ladder. I want to avenge people when they wrong me. Jesus is saying, be very, very careful, not simply to hear my words. And Jesus is reaching back. He knew the Old Testament very, very well. So he's reaching back to a couple of Old Testament examples I want to share with you now. One from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is the people of God are are preparing to enter the land that God had promised them. Some of you will remember that. They had been wandering in the desert for quite a while with Moses. They were a grumpy, stiff-necked, irritable people. And God said, that's fine, I got time. I'm eternal. And God provided for them and cared for them, gave common grace and unique, specific grace as they wandered around in the wilderness, and God gave an entire generation time to die off, who could, who could never see a future other than what they'd known in the past. And he lets them go, save a couple who had the faith to say, look, we can go into this land that God has promised us, and we can take it by his grace and his power. There's a future and a hope for us, just as God has promised. But Moses, before he transfers leadership to Joshua, and God takes Moses home to be with him forever, Moses is reminding the people who they are. And he's reminding them to stand fast in their commitment to God. 
Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This is, a, the, the, this is Moses' version of what Jesus is, is pulling off and saying. The house that comes crashing down and the house that stands when the storm hits it. For I command you today to love your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Let me pause there for a minute. Often, we, we, we have a real trouble understanding the relationship between grace and obedience. But I will just tell you this. God calls us to obedience and fuels us to live that way by his grace. You can't will yourself to live in obedience to God because you can't change your hearts. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount has been about is that if your obedience isn't flowing from a heart that delights in God, that loves God, that delights in others and loves them in a way that only those who have the Spirit of God living in them can do. Not just your friends, right, but your enemies. Unless that's flowing from a heart that's been changed, a heart fueled by love, by grace, by mercy, then it is unacceptable to God anyway. And yet, the fact that we live absolutely under God's grace, by His grace, now and forever, does not negate the call to obedience. Jesus says it's, it's actually our obedience to His teaching that reveals our love for Him. That if we love Him, we obey Him. We do it imperfectly, don't we? But we seek to obey him and we're grieved by our own disobedience. And we pray and we plead with God for help. Verse 17, but, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them. Guys, this is always, there's always a connection between these, these two realities in Scripture. Between basic disobedience to God and the pursuit of other things as idols in our lives. We're going to worship something, right? We're going to worship something or someone. We are created for it. We are designed for it. We are drawn to it. He says, if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day, that you will certainly be destroyed. Now, part of what Moses, well, let me finish. I'll tell you what Moses is getting at. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Part of what Moses is getting at here is not that each individual life will be destroyed. We, we in the Western culture, we are so we are so caught up in, in individuality that it is, it is absolutely an idol that we bow down and worship. Now, in other cultures, they're so caught up with the idolatry of community that they bow down and worship that, and individuals have no worth. So the struggle is to follow the Word of God and to live deeply in it by His grace and by His power. 
But our issue is the idolatry of individuality. And what, what Moses is saying here is, is you as a people, the nation of Israel, you will be destroyed and you will not long live in the blessing and the land and the peace that God has created and designed and called you into and promised you in his covenant with Abraham. And what Moses is saying comes to true, uh, comes uh, to fruition as the people of God wander again and again and again. And they are conquered and they're exiled and they're brought back and they're reconstituted. And through it all, God is working. Through it all, he's patient. Through it all, he's saving a remnant of faithful men and women who will not bow their knee to another, who will not submit to whatever the cultural gods are in their day. But Moses knows this is coming. The writer of Proverbs um, puts it more succinctly, more succinctly, which I guess is the, uh, is the nature of a proverb. Proverbs 10, 25 says, When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. When the storm is swept by, the wicked are gone. But the righteous stand firm forever. Jesus, Jesus has this in the back of his mind. He has this in his heart. As he's saying, I am the one who's come. The one who embodies all of the law and the prophets. And I tell you, if you build your life on anything other than me, it will one day, sooner or later, come crashing down. If not in this life, though often it is in this life, it certainly will at judgment when you stand before God. Now, how do you and I know? Like, how do we know that we're building our lives on something other than Christ? Because this happens so subtly for those of us who are believers. Rarely do we set out and say, man, I confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've been swept into the membership of his body by his redeeming goodness and grace but i really want to build my life on other things that's not how it goes right it goes one small decision here one small decision there one millimeter of movement in the wrong direction and it just keeps going that way how is it that you know you're building your life on something other than christ i would tell you another way to ask this is how do you know if you're getting your identity from somewhere other than christ the, 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 the most specific phrase the Apostle Paul ever used to talk about what it truly means to be Christian is this, that Christians are simply in Christ. We are in Christ. His life living through us, our life lived out by and through him. We are men and women who are in Christ. I want to ask you this morning, where do you get your sense of identity from? And I want to give you just a, a few ways I think I'll mention three. How it is that we fared out if we're building our lives on something other than Christ himself, getting our identity from somewhere else. The first is this, that you and I move to anger quickly. We move to anger quickly. Now, having said that, some of you are going to move to anger more quickly than others simply because you're hot-tempered, right? That's just part of your makeup. All of us have issues we have to wrestle with and struggle with, and that just may happen to be yours right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being, being quick to anger because everything is personal to you, right? Because your life is not built on Christ. 
thereby giving you the security to not always have to defend everything and shape everything all the time. There's an insecurity to your life because it's built on things that you can't control and things that can be lost. So you're quick to anger. It, it, maybe, maybe you've built your life on your uh, political persuasion. And if that's true, friends, I'll tell you this. You can't be friends with anyone who thinks differently than you do politically. You can't have a rational conversation with anyone because you get too wound up. You get too angry. If, if anything over the last 18 months uh, showed, ourselves, showed itself to be completely true, it's that a great swath of people who profess Jesus as Lord are functionally living in our country with their political persuasion and party as Lord. So much so that it will just instantly divide the body of Christ. Shameful, pitiful, obscene, and ridiculous. But it's there. It's there. So if you, if you are moved to anger quickly, and like I say, I'll separate those of you that are by nature just hot-tempered. You can bet probably you're building your life on something other than Christ. And anytime anyone or anything bumps up against it, you get angry because it, it threatens your sense of self-worth and value. A second way to know that you're building your life on something other than Christ is an inability to be quiet when you should be quiet. An inability to be quiet when you should be quiet. Let, let me set it up this way. Um, so often, so much of what you and I say, we've talked about this before, uh, and this is like 90% of social media, is designed to carefully craft what people think about us. To carefully craft and maintain a certain image. We feel a need uh, to correct this and to say that and to clarify that. Instead of just being able to be, be quiet. Richard Foster uh, has a great word on this in his chapter on solitude in the book Celebration of Discipline. He says this, and I want, you, I want everybody to just listen. Because I guarantee you for most of us this is going to hit home somewhere. One reason that we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying on words to manage and control others. We fear so deeply what we think others see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. Perhaps more than anything else, silence brings us to believe that God can care for us, reputation and all. Silence brings us to the point where we, we have the ability to really believe that God can care for us and will care for us, reputation and all. Solitude and silence are lost arts in, in our culture. There has never been a time in human history where human beings were so inundated with noise and information as we are now. Part of the reason it's so important for teenagers, for our students at their age to, to go to retreats, to go to camps, to go to places like that, is that it gives them an opportunity to disconnect mostly, mostly from their cell phones, from social media, from all the ways that they largely interact. 
And those aren't necessarily bad. Like, like it is what it is. It's like the rising of the tide in the ocean. You can wish uh, it were different, but social media is here to stay. And so as followers of Christ, we've got to learn how to bring the glory of God and the goodness of the gospel into those domains of life like we do everywhere else and how much we play there and how much we, we don't play there. But this is the nature of our world right now. If you've got an inability to be quiet, if you feel like you need to correct everything all the time and, and carefully craft your image, perhaps, can I just suggest to you, perhaps um, you're building your house on something other than Christ himself. You're finding your identity somewhere else. One last thing I'd mention, uh, one way that, that uh, you know or that you, it should at least cause you to think about this is excessive worry or anxiety. Now, I'm not talking about depression or some kind of anxiety disorder. And if you struggle with that, get help. Get help. Talk to a friend. Talk to us. Talk to your doctor. Go see a counselor or therapist. If you and I think we don't get kinked up emotionally and psychologically across the years, uh, we deceive ourselves, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of excessive worry or anxiety that's caused when you, when you place anything other than God in the place of supremacy in your life. Because anything else can be, can be lost and taken. And it causes this kind of chronic anxiety or worry in your life. Let me ask you this. Another way to kind of get, a, get at this is to say, what do you want people to know most about you? What is it most important to you that people know about you? Often, that's very revealing. Uh, it, it's interesting. I didn't think growing up in Texas was weird until I lived in other states. Right? I thought Texas was normal. I thought everyone tattooed the state flag on their bodies. Right? I thought everybody had shower curtains with a state flag on it. I thought everyone had images of the state flag and the cutout of their shape plastered around their homes. Until you move to another state, you go, that's actually kind of weird. That's a little strange. Um, I spent some years in the Marine Corps. Also, when you're inside the, the Marine Corps culture, you don't realize how bizarre it is as well. Until you get out of it or you get around some other military. You often ask a Marine, hey, did you... Uh, serve in the military, he'll say, no, I was a Marine. It's just part of that odd culture. I remember getting out at a grocery store in Texas. I've shared this story with some of you. This was maybe three, three years ago. And I had just gotten out of my car, and I see a man pulling in. And, and I see on the front of his truck, he's got a uh, Marine Corps license plate cover. And then I see on his front windshield his rank insignia. Now, you know you're serious if you feel the need to put a, a window decal on your windshield, right? But he wants everyone to know he was once a person of rank. Um, he pulls in. I look at the back, multiple decals from the Marine Corps on the back of the vehicle. He had a, a hitch receiver on the back of his truck, and he had a plug in there with the Eagle Globe and anchor on it. Nice silver EGA there. He steps out. You know, he's got a Marine Corps T-shirt on. He's got a Marine Corps cap on, no kidding, no exaggeration. He's got a belt with a Marine Corps buckle. Where would you just, and I don't know that, where would you imagine this gentleman gets his identity from? 
from being a Marine a hundred years ago, right? Because he, he was up in age. So it had been a while since he served. And I, I just thought, man, like there's nothing wrong with being a Marine or anything else, ble- being a lawyer, a teacher, a plumber, a stay-at-home mom, a CPA, wh- whatever it is. But I just thought, how, how sad to be living decades ago. How sad to, to not realize that you have any worth or value outside of something you once did. Which is mostly what we communicate on our vehicles. I once did something awesome. Look at my stickers. Or I have children that I hope will one day do something awesome. Look at my stickers. All right? And it just, it just made me sad, but, but this is a battle that all of us face. What is it that we want people to know about us, that we just almost have to tell them, hey, I am this, I did that. Guess what? That will often help you know where your struggle with identity and what it is you're building your life on comes from. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with being any of that or celebrating it or being proud that you had the opportunity to serve in that way or do this thing. But if that's the seed of your identity, friends, you will never be whole. If your identity is in your children, you will never be whole. If your identity is in your spouse, you will never be whole. Can I tell you a little secret? Your spouse is broken, right? You know that already. But your spouse knows how broken you are too. But if you bring God into that relationship... Over time, over time, if you both seek him, he has a, an amazing way of doing something beautiful with that holiest of all human relationships. But I'll tell you this too, that when, when you have the courage to build your life on Christ, on the, the words of Christ, on the word of God and the personal work of Jesus Christ, eventually you really will come to the place of human freedom where you know that you have nothing left to prove to anyone and no one left to impress because the only one who will ever stand in judgment of your life has already accepted you. He delights in you. Your sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven and wiped away. He looks at you and he sees a saint. He sees a person that is that is engaged and part of the royal priesthood, the new community of God. Psalm 128, verse 1 says this. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to Him. Do you, do you believe that this morning? And this, this fear is not so much being afraid, right? It could easily be substituted with, blessed are those who honor the Lord. Blessed are those who walk with the Lord. Blessed are those who delight in the Lord. who walk in obedience to him. Do you really believe that that the blessed life is the obedient life? Because there's a a sifting coming in our country right now. You can no longer truly 
be faithfully a follower of Jesus Christ and sort of go unnoticed in our culture. Everything's flipped upside down right now. And we're trying so hard to redesign all of the boundaries and the creative realities that God has put in place. And for you to not agree with that, for you to not champion that, for you to not celebrate that, even in kindness and love, will cause you to be the object of wrath and anger in our culture. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name. What are you building your life on this morning? What is it? This is a constant wrestle for all of us not to drift in this area. There's a quote that is uh, almost always attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it very, very likely did not come from C.S. Lewis. At least we've never found it in any of his writings, but you know. When you, when you can't figure out where something comes from, you just attribute it to Shakespeare, C.S. Lewis, or Martin Luther King Jr. And then, you, and then you roll on. But it is a good quote nonetheless. You can't go back and change the beginning. Some of you are still trying to do this, right? But you can start where you are and change the ending. I would add, by God's grace and with his help. You can't go back and change the beginning. Some of you are still trying to do that. Uh, you're 50, 60, 70, you're still trying to make decisions subconsciously to impress your dad or win the favor of a mom who never did anything but complain. You're still trying to impress a professor that never found you very impressive. You're still trying to go back and have coach put you in like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. Back in 82, you'd have gone to state if he'd have just put you in. You can't go back and change the beginning. But friends, by God's grace and mercy, you and I can start where we are. And in walking with him, often change the end. My challenge to you, on a day where we think and talk and celebrate freedom, is if you want to know true freedom, you'll start where you are today. And seek the rest of today and tomorrow and the next day to live in obedience to what you already know. Trusting God for the outcomes. E.Y. Mullins, e. Mullins, a great Baptist theologian and statesman, once said that um, your Christianity is not reflected in how high you jump on Sunday, but in how straight you walk on Monday. And he was just making a simple statement that those who love Jesus obey him. We trust his words. We trust his words about forgiveness. We trust his words about being peacemakers. We trust his words about patience. We trust his words about who we are in him, given a new identity. We trust his words on money and generosity. We trust his words on human sexuality and marriage. We trust his words on loving our enemies. We trust his words when he says, if we pray, our heavenly father hears. And his heart is moved. And then we live based on the truths we trust. That's what it means to build your life on the rock. Let's stand and pray.